Hello and welcome to Man on the Clap Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast entitled Baseball at the Movies. And it's a companion piece to last week's podcast, MLB in Crisis. The key question is, why does baseball translate so well onto the silver screen in a way that other sports are unable to? Partly is that baseball as an entity helped define and construct Americana. Now, professional baseball comes out of the late 1860s, early 1870s, where America has gone through a traumatic, bloody civil war. And it's starting to find itself. Whereby, if you look at professional basketball, ice hockey and American football, in some ways they're inevitable offshoots of a pre-existing and defined culture. You know, if you take ice hockey, the... It's really only been a national, you know, a national sport in the American sense, probably in the last maybe 20 to 30 years when they started expanding teams into the, the South. For a long time, you know, ice hockey's heartland was in you know, the northern states, the cold weather states. And so it was really, for a long period of time, NHL was really a regional sport in the US. But it's also a continental sport. Because it has these sort of shared roots with Canada. So as a result, hockey movies don't have the ability, I think, to reach people. In other words, so many people have never you know, strapped on skates, never gone down to the, the local ice rink, or don't even have an ice rink, and haven't really ever played ice hockey. Even if you take something like um, college football, is that you had the collegiate system already in place. You had regional rivalries. You had Ivy League rivalries. This is where American football really first started to make an impact. And so in many ways, college football just filled that vacuum. There was room for sports in colleges which would get large crowds and that had the ability to expand on a national basis. You you take the importance of college football in the in the South, as, as a badge of pride. It was kind of the concept that they could compete on the football field. You, know, you still had the, the scars of the Civil War, with the you know, economic lag behind the North. And it played into this sort of cultural stereotype, the idea that you know, in, when the Civil War first started, the, the South had this very arrogant conception that its men were finer, that it sold that there were fighting men, and that you know you had one rebel was worth ten Yankees, ten Union soldiers. And I suppose what college football offered was that ability to say that, to, to do that writ large. To almost cosplay the idea that, you know, if you just simply got 11 rebel soldiers and 11 Yankees, the 11 rebels would have inevitably won. And so it makes it sort of problematic when you're looking at films that deal with sort of college football. Um, I think you've got The Express, which is the story of Bernie Davis, and a little bit in Forrest Gump. Um, and both of those films struggle with the problematic nature of college football in the 50s and 60s is that there was sort of two different fantasies 
there was the sort of first fantasy that the country was united. In other words, you had team from the south recruiting northerners, so Joe Namath being probably the most fast, famous example, a Pennsylvania boy that ended up being quarterback for um, Old Miss. And that there was really a, a level playing field, that everyone was pretty much the same. Which isn't true. I mean, the point is playing those games, you know, northern teams playing teams from the south, was really a tacit acceptance of Jim Crow. In other words, African Americans weren't weren't recruited to play on teams in the South in Jim Crow era. African Americans that were playing for teams based in the North would get racial abuse. They would get you know, poor decisions by the umpires, by the refs, and were intimidated. And really, the second sort of fantasy is for the South where it was ability for them to imagine where they'd won the war. So you had the playing of Dixie, you had Confederate flags with uh, Johnny Reb mascot for Old Miss. And it in then became a form of performative pageantry. The idea that the South wasn't backward, it wasn't in turmoil. So you had these beautiful campuses, you had beautiful cheerleaders, you had full stadiums, dominant teams. And it was really a form of pro-South revisionism. It was a sort of a continuation of some of the themes that were first sort of posited in Gone with the Wind. And it wasn't so bad, and it isn't so bad now. And these images were really beamed into America's living room through... Know, print media, through radio, through television of college football. And it's only really when you get to the sort of riots at Old Miss when when James Meredith became the first African American student to enrol, you know, where they had to send down, you know, federal troops to protect and there was riots, there was a huge amount of violence, and it was shocking. And it was one of in many ways it was one of the first examples where a national television audience saw what was going on in the South and just how awful it was. And so when we when you look at The Express, which is a story of Ernie Davis, and when they finally play in they play in the South in the Cotton Bowl against um, Texas. And really the the storyline sort of puts the North as the good guys and the South as the cartoon villains where, you know, he's racially abused, he's beaten on the field, the crowd is giving him huge amounts of abuse, and in the end Syracuse, his university, wins the game, and instead of going to the formal banquet after the game, the white players and the black players all go somewhere else where they're an integrated bar where they can have food, and it's the happy ending to his college career. But that's not actually what happened. In other words, from what I've read, the players didn't boycott it. They did turn up. Ernie Davis wasn't allowed to, to go to the venue because of Jim Crow. And in the same way, Forrest Gump struggles with it. In other words, if you were to watch Forrest Gump and not have any real knowledge of college football or you know, America in the 50s and 60s, you would think that the civil rights issues that I've sort of vaguely brought up in Forrest Gump was something that was entirely to do with the campus and was nothing to do with the football side of it. That, you know, he was able to play for Alabama, but there was no 
you know, Confederate flags. And it was only kind of this minor locker room scene where Forrester has picked up the um, black student's um, book that she dropped and given it to her. And the, the coach has sort of given him a weird look. And that's the point, is that college football inevitably asks awkward questions when dealing with these type of issues. And really the standard arc of the sports film is, is not a format that's best placed to answer those questions. In the end, when Hollywood films touch on these kind of stories retrospectively, they always tend to put what should have happened, what not what actually did happen. So in other words, at the end of these films, you, you always end up with a, oh, that's a happy ending, and that it shows you, you know, racial tolerance. But then you sort of look at the, the what happened next, and it's like, well, that didn't change. You know, the racism was still prevalent. It still goes on even to today. So what I'm going to do is I'm really going to go through sort of different sports and how they're kind of covered it in films and really why those sports don't appear best on the big screen. I mean, take golf, for instance. You know, the films are a way of reimagining the sport. You know, it's egalitarian and a mode of social betterment, which is part of the on the story arcs in Caddyshack, is that Danny Noonan is trying to get a scholarship and you know, having been a caddy at the country club, that there was a way and means that it, you know, because he, he's from a poor family, that he could then get a scholarship by basically being good at golf. You then have the sort of the idea of the outsider upending the state hierarchy of the sport, which is kind of Happy Gilmore. I mean, really, the the only film I suppose that comes closest from that I've seen personally to I suppose capturing the soul of the sport is Tin Cup. The idea of the the maverick golfer coming through the qualifying tournament to make it to a major and doing brilliantly well but it it's more of a a fantasy than a, a realistic portrayal of the jobbing tour pro you know the, the classic example being sort of Jean van der Velde it's more like well it's a sort of fantasy that every single golfer has imagine if you just went on a hot streak and you were able to get into the, a major and then even if you take sort of Bag of Vance, which is, you know, I enjoy the film, but I, I find it you know, problematic, is that you have the idea, the Will Smith's character, Bag of Vance, the, the magical Negro, who comes out of nowhere mysteriously, helps the white protagonist, and then sort of disappears just at the end of the, the film. And this film's supposed to be set in Savannah in the early 1930s, with seemingly very little obvious racism. There, there's no sort of sense that you're actually watching a two-hour film that is set right in the middle of Jim Crow South. You, know, you can then take that on to, if you're looking at sort of basketball films, the, the, the sort of reappraisal of shoesiers. You know, the idea that, you, that the film's sort of arc is that the gritty, hard-working white team coming together to beat a more talented black inner-city team. They're talented, but undisciplined. And that's just a really... It's a really difficult thing, I suppose, to, to get past. I mean, what that film does really well, it, it sort of captures the power of sort of high school hoops and what it means to people, especially sort of in Indiana. 
and you've really got then set against I suppose the the more gritty realism of films like He Got Game and Hoop Dreams, which are, I think are brilliant examples of how the African community forges with the basketball industry. And it really, how that in a way sort of intersects with America as a whole. In other words, the, the intersection between African Americans and the basketball industry and America is at a distance. And it's based on results. In other words, if you fall short, as you know, the kids in Hoop Dreams do, you don't get to you. You're not recognised by wider America. Wider America only gets involved once you make it into college, into a big time college program, or you make it to the bigs. You make it to the NBA. Mm. And that's really, there's an almost an element of sort of tension and morality about it. Is that, is it right, really, to just sort of pluck these kids out of the inner cities, throw them into a prep school, effectively based on their ability on the, the court, and if you don't perform, you would then be removed and really sort of sent back to where you came from. Now, I've already sort of spoken a little bit about ice hockey, but... I suppose ice hockey films are very much US ice hockey films because there's really an emotional distance between the sort of the Canadian cultural immersion in the game to the more regional, less charged American experience. So really, American hockey films deal, I think, best with loss. So if you take the seventies film Slapshot with Paul Newman it's wonderful in terms of touching on the fans and you know lustful violence the players struggles but also it's really more set against the backdrop of this 70s economic decline in other words the factories are shutting down and as a result the team's going to get shut down And the aftermath in small town America from that loss. The loss of pride in losing your team. The loss of jobs. The loss of hope. And you know what happens next. And the, the uncertainty. And they really... It's a similar sort of... And this is a film sort of 20-30 years later. You have in Goon with um, Sean William Scott. Is that there's the inevitable phasing out of the goon in ice hockey in other words you used to literally every team would sort of carry a bruiser someone who would fight someone who if would effectively act as a deterrent so if you smashed our best player i would then knock out your best player and you'd have fights between these sort of goons and they weren't particularly great hockey players but they brought fans into the sport but there's the inevitable that we now know the damage that these men were having. They were getting knocked out, they were getting concussions, their bodies were being broken. And often, you know, there's been suicides, there's been alcoholism, there's been drug addiction. And now the sport doesn't have goons anymore. There's less fighting, because we now know the damage that concussions can do. And the second rail is of sort of... Yeah, the second rail is of patriotism. So you get that in Miracle, which is the 
story of the US Olympic hockey team who beat the Soviets. The Soviets were the dominant force in the 60s and 70s in international ice hockey. They were just, they obliterated the oppo. And the US team was made up of college players, so they weren't even pros. They were expected to get annihilated at Lake Placid in the Winter Olympics. And you have a sort of maverick coach who spent months and months training these boys up. And eventually, you know, the miracle on ice, they actually beat the Soviets. It was a complete shock. And it was at a time when America had been through the sort of traumas of the late 70s and economics. You had the Iran hostage crisis. And you can even see it in sort of a film as, which is you know, similar principles, but sort of Mighty Ducks 2. And in many ways, it was using the sport as a gateway to America being the plucky underdog. Because they're not the plucky underdog in basketball. They wouldn't be the plucky underdog in baseball. But ice hockey was probably the one sort of international sport where you could actually put America as being a, a team that isn't guaranteed gold. And I always found it absolutely fascinating in Mighty Ducks 2, the, the idea that you that there's just no mention of Canada. They don't, they don't play the Canadians, and that actually instead of the, the Russians, Iceland are the bad guy. It was, it was almost the, the sort of commercial decision that they had to have a that they had to have a bad guy and but they didn't want to offend any sort of country and that Iceland was the smallest one, the one that was most likely not to complain back. And in these sort of ice hockey films, you have this sort of the worshipping of the, the coach, especially in Miracle, the alpha male. And if you, if you watch Miracle and the way how, and if you watch it from, a, I suppose, a 21st century perspective, is that you're supposed to, by the end of the film, you know, have this deep respect for, for the coach. But you, just, you sort of see in some of the actions that he was really abusing these kids. I mean, they were kids. They were college students, you know, 19, 18, 19, 20. And he was making, you know, after one game, he didn't feel they had put the right effort in. So he just made them do sprints up and down the, the rink for literally hours, again, until they were, you know, basically passing out. Which is really abuse by, you know, okay, yes, they had to train really hard to be, you know, grown adult professional hockey players from the Soviet Union, but it's still abuse. Which I think leads on to why is that when you have global sports, take uh, cricket and football, is that it's very difficult to come up with a movie that I suppose captures a global audience. Because how do you craft or create stories that would appeal to a wider audience or that would be realistic? Each country you know, takes, you know, adds its own flavour to cricket, to football. And so in a way their own interpretation. And so it's wildly different outlooks. I mean, take um, a sort of cult classic in English film, Mike Bassett, England Manager, which is really lampooning and satirising English football culture, but in a way that foreign audience may not necessarily appreciate, understand, or even really care about. You know, with American football, what you have is it's almost the... The inability of fictional films to, I suppose, accurately mimic the realities of the sport 
I think the, your best example would be the Al Pacino speech in Any Given Sunday. And it's really a fantasy of what we imagined a coach's speech in the locker room when you're, you're down and you need someone to inspire you. And so Al Pacino is a fantastic bit of acting and it's a wonderful sort of soliloquy. And you then jump up and you want to run through a brick wall and then they go out and win the game. And yet, if you actually look at things like Last Chance You or Hard Knocks or NFL Film or um, America's Game, really shows that the coaches' speeches aren't like that. It, it's, it's completely different to how we imagined it. And because what you have with Last Chance You, with Hard Knocks, is the element of realism. In other words, you, you can see the, the actual force of the tackles and you know what a locker room is actually like. And it's so, so immersive and so real that actually there's virtually no way that you could mimic it without it being really an afterthought. You know, why bother watching any given Sunday when actually there's more than enough documentary evidence that you can watch where it's real? Where, these are, where the characters aren't made up, where actually you're just talking about real people, real games, real results. I mean, if you look at some things such as, you know, sort of Remember the Titans and Express, and really, they end up retreating to fiction in the face of reality. In other words, the actual storyline from Remember the Titans doesn't actually... doesn't match what actually happened to the real high school which was really an, an amalgamum of about five different high schools and that had a, you know, just an absolutely huge attendance and as a result w was a, in a position to be a dominant team in that local area. And with the Express you have the idea of the, the, the white mentor being hard but fair to a young black protégé for their own good. And it's sort of your yeah, ally men of honour, which was you know, Cuba Gooding Jr. and Robert De Niro. And it just doesn't really hold up to sort of modern eyes when you look back on it and think, well, should we really be venerating the white coach for, you know, being so hard on the, the young black protégé? It, it's just not an image that really stands up to, to sort of modern analysis, I guess. So what you have with, with baseball films is a kernel of truth. So in other words, there is no baseball film that is that is fully fully accurate. There's always elements of there's always elements of you know, Hollywood getting involved and slightly changing the details to fit the, the narrative flow. I mean forty two, broadly speaking, the movie about Jackie Robinson getting to the big leagues is accurate. You know, the stories are true, but there's bits and pieces of it that aren't 100% accurate. But in the end, the vast majority of the film will give you a understanding and a grounding in what actually happened. But there's always, in baseball films, that kernel of truth, which you don't get in other films. In other words, probably the closest in golf you could get to is sort of John Daly and Happy Gilmore. But even then, it's 
it's a coincidence. In other words, Adam Sandler's character is not based on John Daly. <laughs> Baseball is how America sees itself. It's independence. It's ability to build institutions. Really, it's ability to tell stories about itself. This doesn't mean or guarantee that baseball is America's most popular sport, or ever will be again. But what it does mean is that baseball films have more importance on a national and cultural level. The stories the best baseball film tells is one of hope. You know, giving opportunities to female ball players, pro ball players in a league of their own. You know, the breaking of the colour line by Jackie Robinson. You know, the you know, the the story of, you know, Lou Gehrig, you know, whereby Gary Cooper does the you know, the famous scene when Lou Gehrig gives a, a speech to a Pat Yankee Stadium, saying, you know, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Even though there's actually very little film footage of the actual speech itself, the movie was so was so powerful that often the Lou Gehrig speech is considered one of the, the greatest moments in sort of American history that's been captured on camera, even though it wasn't. We're, you're actually looking at the film version of it. But in many ways, it's almost like sort of false memory syndrome. The Gary Cooper speech has almost become the Lou Gehrig actual speech and has really become blurred in most people's sort of cultural memory of it. You know, and if you take, say, Field of Dreams and Eight Men Out, you know, the need for a society to be able to forgive those that it punishes. You know, it, it's an America that, while not perfect, still has the capacity to live up to its founders' ideals. You know, that's why there is a kernel of truth to baseball films. There really was a farmer who ploughed under his own crops to build a baseball field. There was a ball player called Shoeless Joe Jackson who was thrown out of baseball forever in the Black Sox scandal. You know, the kernel of truth in all baseball films unlocks the magic of it. Which, when you tie that to the concept of the American dream, makes it a, a potent emotional pull. You, know, you compare it, you know, the NFL is larger. And by most, if not all, metrics far more popular than baseball. But at its heart, professional baseball is more realitous. And by realitous, which I, as far as I'm aware is a made-up word that I've come up with, it deals more with the realities of everyday life. In other words, the history of the NFL is the sense that businessmen wanted to monetize the game. You know, they'd seen how popular college football was. And, you know, there had been iterations of professional leagues in the 20s and 30s and 40s, but none of them had ever really captured the, the national imagination. But eventually, there was, the, there was always this knowledge that eventually you could create a national professional league and that would have just limitless potential. In terms of making money, in terms of you know, sort of power projection for the the owners, you know, it's a sport that breaks the players' bodies unapologetically. 
you know, it, it has at times pandered to the conservative leanings of its fan base. And it, it stood up for, you know, the, those leanings over its own players' lawful demonstrations. You know, it's, it's a sport that relies on local government funding to maintain its stadia, despite billionaire owners making just huge profits. You, know, you have a sport that venerates the, the alpha male coach and the command structure that is majority white. It's rife with nepotism. You know, I, I, I love watching you know, American football, both college and professional. I love watching the NFL. I'm a fan. But as a, as a result, there, there's no expectation placed on football to being anything other than a mirror. You know, if you are a NFL fan, if you're an American football fan, you're making a conscious decision in accepting moral compromises to in order to enjoy the sport. If you love college football, you're ex understanding and tacitly agreeing that those players don't deserve to be paid. So in other words, the universities make huge amounts of money, the coaches make huge amounts of money, the networks, the computer game people all make money. Player A if they take you know, a $25 tattoo from someone, could be chucked out of the sport. You know, we all know that Thursday night football isn't good for the players' health. It's not particularly great football, but it's a decision that, that really the TV companies needed. You know, they couldn't fit any more football into Sunday or Monday. Thursday was the one that they could get away with where there wasn't much in the schedules anyway so as a result it doesn't matter you're getting Thursday night football whether you like it or not <laughs> yeah baseball is held to a, a higher set of morals which in many ways counterintuitively makes it less popular and far more fragile so if you take the, the, the fallout from the strike in 94, which wiped out the 1994 World Series, was, was such a profound shock that many fans abandoned the sport entirely. You know, the concept of professional baseball being a business, which is, it had always been so, was alienating. As, as in, for, some, for these sort of fans, the sport had been packaged as America itself. You know, as American as mum's apple pie. You, know, you had baseball on the 4th of July, hot dogs, Little League. And it was something that was rooted in an imaginable past for a country that had undergone huge change. And when you had anything that, that sort of shattered that image, where like the real world, whereby with the NFL you can have strikes, you can have scrubs playing for three or four games, and the, the world carries on. There's an expectation that that's just... The price of doing business. That is what the NFL is. Yes, if the Baltimore Colts leave in the middle of the night and go to Indianapolis, that's just the NFL for you. you know, if Art Modell moves the Cleveland Browns, it ripping Cleveland's heart out, moves it to Baltimore, becomes Ravens and wins the title and gets to you know hoist the Lombardi Trophy while you know Cleveland didn't have a team. Eh. That's just, you know, that's America. That's just the way how the world goes. You know, jobs have gone from the, you know, heartland, you know, which is now the Rust Belt, and have gone to the non-union South and the Sun Belt. That's just the way how things are in America. It's possibly not fair, but you just have to get on with it. 
whereby if you did try to use the same logic in baseball, you know, that was considered horrifying. How could the players of yeah, you know, how could you not have a World Series? Regardless of whether the fact that the owners were in the wrong and that the players had, you know, perfectly valid points, people were were just so angry at the the players and really the sport itself that they weren't willing to to look into it in a dispassionate manner. You know, baseball had been a mooring, you know, an American-conceived, an American-built institution that had grown as the country had, yet it had retained the seductive appeal of timelessness. In other words, yes, there's uh, Yankees wearing pinstripes being one of the best teams in the sport at Yankee Stadium. Which is in the Bronx. You had the you know the Cubs were rub were useless and played at Wrigley, but no what you know you still everyone would go there, have a good time, drink some beer, and sit out in the bleachers. And therefore, you know the strike in challenging this on an institutional level was really to ask questions about the American dream. You know, how the sporting society, so, you know, the, the owners, the players, the media, and even the president, you know, they were unable to interject successfully. You know, had failed to compromise, had failed to maintain, I suppose, the innocence of the sport in the modern game. You know, the, probably the, the last major scandal would have been, let's say, take the Black Sox scandal. But that had led to the, the, the creation of the commissioner. And the broad scything of gambling-related fixing out of the game forever. You know, the eight men out were banished. And in a way, it's, it's a performative measure of justice. That rather than tarnishing the sport, effectively reaffirmed its fundamental virtue. In other words, ergo, to commit a crime against the sport was de facto a crime against the American way of life itself. You know... Hence, the the steroid scandal was a lasting black eye in the sport of baseball. Yet, it was really a minor inconvenience for other sporting leagues in America, most notably the NFL. In other words, there's lots of pearl clutching when you talk about baseball and steroids, whereby in NFL, plenty of great players have had to take in steroids, have had and have gone through suspensions, and it hasn't affected their ability to get into the Hall of Fame. It hasn't affected their standing with the fans, with the teams, with the opposition. The world just carries on because I suppose there's an acceptance that, you know, in such a physical game that, you know, steroid use would happen, would take place. Whereby if you try and use that same logic in baseball, you're going you're to be shut down very quickly. People just aren't going to see it in that manner. You know... If you take it to its logical combination, is that that's why baseball needs to have, you know, hallowed records to link to the past, you know, to once again reaffirm the the historical importance of the sport in American culture. You know, Babe Ruth wasn't just an icon of the sport of baseball, but of the country. You know, a symbol of what it meant to be an American. And the opportunities it, it bestowed. Therefore, in some ways, it makes perfect sense for the asterisk to be affixed by Commissioner Happy Chandler when Roger Maris broke the record in 61. The point was is that 
Roger Maris for a hit, two forty. You know, he was a, a great player. Got you know, one two MVPs. You know, played for the Yankees, but he wasn't you know a media colossus. Colossus. Now, he was a shy guy from the Midwest who happened to share an outfield with Mickey Mantle, who was the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, you know, the the straight-out-of-central casting image of what a brilliant baseball player, a switch hitter could hit for average, could you know, hit home runs, could get great throwing arm, great fielder. And it's noticeable that so many people didn't want Roger Maris to break that record because in some ways you're effectively diminishing the babe. In other words, who could it possibly match up to the babe? Probably the only person in that era would have been you know, Mickey Mantle. <laughs> it was a petty decision, but it fits in with the need of baseball for exceptionalism and how... Many fans and the wider public need that sense that baseball is somehow exceptional. You know, other sports records were regularly broken, but to break a baseball hallowed record required something intangible. A sense you were both progressing and respecting the sport's national and cultural heritage. You know, Hank Aaron did when he broke Babe Ruth's all-time home run record. You know, he started his career in the Negro Leagues. You know, he broke the record in the Deep South, you know, in Atlanta. You know, it was a seminal moment. You have the fantastic commentary from you know, Vin Scully. You have the reaction of the crowd. I mean, even to a lesser extent, the healing of Cal Ripken Jr. breaking Lou Gehrig's consecutive game record. You know, the, the steroid era in detonating the single season and all-time home run record are particularly sore issues amongst you know, both you know, fans and really a, a sizable faction of the Hall of Fame electorate, you know, the, the, the media. The scandal hit at the heart of whether baseball can maintain its cultural position into the 21st century. You know, Hank Aaron, Babe Ruth and Roger Maris represented an ideal of what was good and wonderful about the sport. With Barry Bonds, it was an arrogant, vainglorious pursuit of sporting immortality through pharmacological means. And in some ways removed the exceptionalism of baseball. The point was that he was a colossal, cheating jerk. But in what way was he different to Lance Armstrong? Or any number of world, you know, hundred meter record holders, in trying to pull the wool over the fans' eyes. You know, how was the home run record really that different to the NFL's offensive records? You know, they were all obliterated. In other words, all the all the NFL offensive records have been done in the past sort of 15, 20 years, because they they've seen so many changes to the rules. And really, it's designed to improve the sport's overall marketability. I.e., you need to have quarterbacks being the centre of things. You need offence, you need passing, you need touchdowns. So as a result, you know, the 5,000 yards that Dan Marino put up was amazing in of its time. If you do 5,000 yards now, you could well be a league average quarterback. 
And the point is, is that NFL fans don't care about that. They are compared to the here and now. In other words, if you create a rule that you know, improves the the flow of the game, brilliant. Whereby any sort of baseball rule changes, you know, have to go through molasses. There is just constant debate of whether it's it's damaging the the heritage of the sport. The Hall of Fame voters ornery pell clutching in regards to denying Bonson Clemens can be argued as a protest against the cynicism that Bonds et al. engendered. I mean, in some ways, it is ridiculous to have a Hall of having a Hall of Fame not have the all-time home run leading hitter, someone who won, you know, seven MVPs, someone who could steal bases, who won Gold Gloves, you know, who could do virtually anything on a baseball field. One of the 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 consensus top five, top ten players of all time. You know, you take Roger Clemens, one of the best pitchers of all time. And again, nowhere near the Hall of Fame, unlikely to get into the Hall of Fame. But in some ways, it's a desire for baseball, for its Hall of Fame, to make a moral sand. In a, I suppose, a symbolic reclamation of the sports soul. That's it. What they're trying to do is to say, baseball is exceptional. In other words, when you break baseball rules, when you damage the way how people view the sport, which is what steroids did, which is what you know, what labour disputes do, or the basic believability, which is what the you know eight men out in the Chicago Black Sox scandal did, you don't just get punished; you have to be banished in a very obvious way. In other words, you will never get into the Hall of Fame. Regardless, it doesn't matter whether the other people were doing, whether there was mitigating circumstances. Even if you like, you know, Souza and Mark McGuire, you did lots of good for the sport. That doesn't matter. It can be tempting to characterise this as an older generation of writers really lashing out at what they see as the player's personal deception. I suppose when you cover these athletes on a personal level, and, you know, the reality is that they were actually, you know, lying to you, that they were hoodwinking you, I can sort of understand why you, and also, if you were then, if they were breaking records that you hallowed, the people that you, players that you saw as a kid, who were your heroes, I can kind of understand it, in the sense that Happy Chandler was a a huge Babe Ruth fan, he had goes written the Babe's books, so for him, no one, and especially not Roger Maris, was going to break his record. If you know, if there was some way that he could put an asterisk on it, he was going to find a way to do so. Yeah, the recent anger from the fans regarding the the messy, the ugly fight between the players and owners over the twenty twenty one season shows that fans and the widest sporting public still have a desire to see the sport through the cultural prism of the American dream. To see baseball as a unique entity, offering the best qualities of America, of hope, acceptance, the quest for excellence, a link to the, the past, present and future. You know, opportunity for all. You know, this spasm of anger should serve really, in a way, as a timely warning. You know, that the 
enduring capacity of the sports cultural legacy shouldn't be underestimated. What makes baseball so special and different from all other sports to its fan base is predicated on maintaining this delicate balance. You know, as a progressive 21st century modern global sport, with the necessity to continue as the sport of the American dream. And in nowhere is this better served than the silver screen. So, you know, how is baseball, I suppose, captured on film? I suppose it, one of the great things about baseball movies is that it doesn't just capture... It, it, it seems to capture the whole kaleidoscope of the sport. So, you know, how many great films, sports films, have been made about the lower leagues? And I, you know, there's probably maybe three or four, but not global successes like, you know, Bull Durham was. You know, the writer of Bull Durham had played minor league ball. And therefore, it, it gives the, the anecdotes an insider confessional edge. You know, how to get a rain out. In other words, you, you know, if you're playing in the south and there hasn't been a cloud in the sky for weeks, break into the stadium at night and turn on the water pipes and you'll flood the diamond and the next day's game will be postponed as a rain out. You know, the the idea of, you know, you, you have these interminable sort of bus drives. You know, the fact that you just stop off at a, you know, rest stop and you just get handed your burgers and, you know, that's what you eat before the game. And in some ways, it's the most, I suppose, accurate rendition of what everyday life is like in the pros. You know, if you take Crash's character, you know, Kevin Costner's character, it's the transition between the end of a playing career and the sort of first baby steps moves into coaching. I mean, you have this fantastic you know, scene between sort of um, the manager, Skip, and Crash. It's after a game, the team have been losing. It's a young team. And Skip goes to Crash, you know, yeah, I'm a good guy, you know. I, I, you know, I try to help them, you know, try to, you know, you know, get them to play their best. You know, what can I do? We're not playing well. And Crash sort of says, their kids scare them. So he immediately goes on this sort of massive rant. He you know, throws them all into the shower, throws some bats in there, and says, you know, you're, you, you're playing badly. You have to get better now. And it's, this has really happened in, in the big leagues, where you've had a manager just rant at the players and gets one of the more senior players into his office afterwards. And the players expecting to be given an extra specially long dress down. And what happens is the skip goes up to him and goes, uh, how was my rant? Do you, did you, do you think I did well? Is that kind of insiderdom that you don't get really from you know, standard baseball coverage? And on a, on a deeper level, you know, it, it's sort of where Singaway sits in the grander scheme of things. It's, it's emotionally a million miles from the big leagues. You, you know, you've got to go to double A. Triple A. You've then got to get into the big leagues, and it's a place where everyone wants to be. But it's imp also shows its importance as a cog. That if it was removed, the game, the professional game, would sort of break down. You know, the point is, is that y you have the 
the love and passion that you know Max Patkin, the clown prince of baseball, just goes from park to park, entertaining people, just loving doing that day after day, year after year. The love of the announcer Teddy Garland, who just loves the game, you know, and it's there's a poignancy in you know how the miners really mixes the hope of the youth with the veteran who just wants to end the season, you know. The idea that you know even a minorly journeyman can still be a hero, and you know there's the film Everybody Wants Some, which is you know about college ball, and it sort of captures the the special dynamic of a college team, whereby you've got young men from all across the country are thrown together in an overtly competitive environment. Where you know, you're having to compete for you know starting places, you know you have the the junior you have the you know, freshman coming in who could then potentially take the you know, the sophomore and the junior's place on the team and that kind of tension, but also with this need to come together as a team, a need for leadership that you know McReynolds displays by his deed and by just being a fantastic athlete and the awe that his teammates have for his gifts as a player and it also shows the reality of college ball is that for many this is as good as it gets in other words you're not good enough for the pros this is the two last two three years of your life where you can play ball every day on a on a competitive meaningful level while for others it, it's the beginning you know, the idea of the, the ultimate sort of vulnerability of going from being the best in your town to the next level where you might not be as good as you think you are. And then you've got all of these sort of films that show the fan base and what it's like to be a baseball fan, what it's like to love the game. You know, Major League, Perfect Catch and Rookie of the Year. And all, all these movies display the, the irrationality the ritual baseball fandom and how it, it sort of burrows into your everyday life. You know, every kid dreams of playing for their hometown team. Rookie of the Year, I mean, I watched that as a kid. And it is, it's just that dream of somehow magically being able to play for a team that you love. You know, and, and how a city can be energised and brought to life by a special team. You know, the idea that dreams can come true as long as you retain hope. You know, and with Perch Big Catch, what it's like to fall in love with the game. Yeah, and then there's movies where, and I think for the love of the game, it's not maybe the, the best baseball movie. But for me, it's the best baseball film at getting inside the mind of a professional ball player. You know, how they block out the crowd noise. You know, the, the sort of selfishness that is intrinsic, intrinsic with rehab from injuries. The idea of the, the, the pitcher halfway through a perfect game just not realising. There really has been baseball players that have been pitching a no-hitter, a perfect game, and just not had a clue. I remember reading one guy, that he was finally sort of found himself in the sixth inning, and everyone was sitting at the other side of the dugout and giving him room, and he didn't really understand why. Until we sort of looked up at the scoreboard and realised that he was actually pitching a no-hitter. You know, with you know a league of their own. You know, that desire just to simply play ball 
and prove yourselves that, to the naysayers that women could play baseball. And with the Sandlot, which is one of my favourite you know, kid baseball movies, it, it captures that desire that you can really only have when you're a kid, when simply the most important thing in the world is playing ball with your friends. Which I think then leads, I guess, to the, you know, the, the, the sort of the, not quite the ultimate baseball film, but the one that I think best, I suppose, extrapolates baseball's meanings, you know, especially to, you know, sort of American audiences. It is filled of dreams. And it really asks you, what's your personal, you know, emotional attachment to the game? And it's often through your family. You know, you have that wonderful, you know, James Earl Jones speech about baseball in America and what it means. You know, one of my favourite things, you know, as I've said a little bit earlier in the podcast, was the idea that there's always a kernel of truth in baseball films. You know, for example, in For the Love of the Game, there's been so many times when you watch a sports film and the commentary is just amazing. And you realise, of course it's amazing. It's someone sitting there in an air-conditioned office writing it out. And they can you know, make the storyline as emotional and as thrilling and as exciting as, you can, as your imagination can possibly come up with. And then you can get a professional actor with a fantastic voice to come in and do the voiceover. So it just sounds amazing. But obviously it's not real. And yet with baseball films, what you always have is is that, you know, in Major League, it's Bob Uecker is the announcer, who's the famous Milwaukee Brewers announcer. You know, he was um, a player, wasn't a, a catcher, wasn't particularly good. And um, he's, one of his most famous quotes is, how do you catch a knuckleball? Which is where, you know, you basically throw the ball very slowly, but without spin, so it can just float and move you know, completely randomly. And he said the best way of catching a knuckleball is to basically wait till it hits the backstop and then you go and pick it up. And then you have in For the Love of the Game, it's Vin Scully, is you know, the fan the legendary, you know, Dodgers broadcaster, is the one that is actually doing the commentary for this film. And so you real I think the most famous bit of Vin Scully's commentary, if you're just talking about Dodger games rather than the national games. So, example, the uh, World Series, Kirk Gibson home run, and the Hank Aaron home run is the when he was doing a commentary for one of doing Stanley Kopak's perfect game, and there's a um, transcription of I think ninth inning, and you can find it online and you can listen to it, and it is just the most amazing bit of commentary and it is better than anything that a scriptwriter could have come up with and it, and you realize he's doing it off the top of his head in the ninth inning of a you know it's Dodger Stadium it's Stanley Kofax one of the greatest pitchers of all time and so you realize that at, at its heart what baseball films are are a gateway into the magic of, of the sport. Thank you for listening.